Well, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, always great to come out here for uh, Shepherd Summit and we or the Ironman Summit, and now the Shepherds Summit as well. Uh, I think we've been coming the whole time that you've had the Ironman Summit, and our church loves to come out here, and, and it's good to, to interact with you men um, as well. I I enjoy the years too when when I don't have to speak and I'm just hanging out with you guys and talking through it. So uh, I don't I don't know that I am the best example to talk through uh, evangelism, and Dave wanted us to talk through some of the things we're doing. Uh, about evangelism. I always feel so self-conscious about that. You know, tell us what you're doing in evangelism. (laughs) I feel really self-conscious. I kind of want to just hear from you guys and and you share your success stories because I always feel like we're not doing all that we we could. And maybe it's stereotypically true that some of the churches that are the more Bible-teaching-oriented churches, some would say they're the churches with the big God theology, sometimes are the least intentionally evangelistic churches because they assume the sovereignty of God too much and don't engage people uh, intentionally in evangelism. And the more attractional churches tend to, to be the ones who are more intentional on evangelism, and we would perhaps come back and say, yes, but they're so theologically thin that you wonder what kind of evangelism is being done and there's this back and forth that goes on about that and I would guess that there's some truth behind some of those stereotypes um, that that both groups need to respond to and and learn from and uh, at our church I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we need to learn more of what we could do intentionally evangelistic I'm very confident of that and I'll share with you some of what we're trying to do to address that but in thinking through the subject, uh, I just know, I just know, Summit Woods Baptist Church could do more and do better at what we're we're trying to do in evangelism. At the same time, just to kind of piggyback on something you were alluding to a moment ago, Dave, um, I'm hearing reports from like-minded churches, certainly in a small fellowship of pastors that uh, I've been interacting with for a while in the Kansas City metro area who are all experiencing what I would say is some kind of current surge of not just attendance, but there seems to be a zealousness for a deeper approach to to Christianity, an interest in the Bible, wanting to understand how the Bible drives life, just something that seems to be more intense post-COVID than it was pre-COVID. And just talking with guys, I'm hearing of large, we, we have had a large surge at our church. I think the guys who are here would look at that. Um, our our uh, pastoral assistant, who couldn't be here tonight, he walked into my office this week and he says, you know, he gave me a number of how many kids we had, which was just astronomical for us. And he says, you know, we had this number all together on Sunday, which exceeded what we had at Easter. Uh, and this isn't an Easter kind of season right now, at least this time of year. Something unique seems to be going on. Uh, and I, I just wonder, and, and I don't know if we can know this until in retrospect we look at it to see if God isn't doing something in this area, in this region of the world that might be akin to revival. I don't know. You none of us will know that until we look at it in retrospect. But it's interesting to think through I mean, when you talk about wanting to see something, you know, what are you doing evangelistically? I, 
one of the greatest stories we have from our church of someone who came to faith race recently is we didn't do anything. <laughs> and I don't know if that's what I want to recommend to you or not, but uh, <laughs> I really love it. We had a, a young attorney and uh, she, during COVID, she was, uh, she was an atheist. She did not believe there was a God, didn't care if, if a God existed, chose not to believe that way. But during the riot season that went along with COVID, COVID she started to get very, very agitated, upset, worried, anxious, and actually having anxiety attacks. And, and it just happened to be a friend of hers tweeted a verse from Isaiah, didn't comment on it, just tweeted the verse. And she'd never heard that before. And she said, Isaiah, that's in the Bible. And she went and dug up a Bible in her house and read the entire book of Isaiah and was convinced that there was a God and this was the God she needed to know. And so she began to listen to how she found this on the internet. She just started listening to guys like R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and Alistair Begg. And she's listening to them on YouTube and whatnot. And she's getting just rooted in good, healthy, solid Bible teaching. And, and at the end of those programs, they say, you need to find a local church. And she's like, how am I going to find a local church in Lee Summit that does this? And she just randomly typed in expository preaching because someone on YouTube had mentioned that and up came our church. So she watched us online for, I don't know how many weeks, several weeks, guys. And because she's a single, young, single lady, it's a little, you know, imposing to just walk into a church. Uh, but that's what she did. She just walked in and, and said, I'm a new Christian. What do I do? I love those examples. You know, those are the easy ones. If they could all be like that, uh, uh, great. And, and she's flourishing. She's brought her mother, who she thinks has recently come to faith. She's brought a sister-in-law, who I think has recently come to faith in Christ. And we're working with them and other family members. I mean, I would love for, for that. But that just is an illustration of what we could probably rehearse several times over of what I think the Lord himself is doing. So maybe I would just commend to you to reread, if you haven't read Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism. Uh, I gave a copy of that to all of our elders this year, just because I, I wonder if we're not seeing something and we should think through these, these, these things a little more carefully. But I, I want to talk about the discussion of evangelism by asking the question, what is evangelism? And so I'm, I'm sure many, if not most of you, have read J.I. Packer's classic book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And if you have not, well, um, I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe you're not a Christian, um, <laughs> or maybe you just became a Christian, or you're just the spiritually oblivious, but you need to read that book if you haven't read it. Uh, or maybe you're just, maybe you're Southern Baptist, and that's why you didn't read it. And, uh, there's more to that. There's not many Southern Baptists in the room, are there? I think it is a must-read book when we're thinking through evangelism and the work of evangelism. It's Packer's third chapter I want to quote from for just a moment and, and just let this begin our conversation. His third chapter in the book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God is about evangelism. And he begins by asking the question, what is evangelism? And he says, it might be expected that evangelical Christians would not need to spend time discussing this question. 
in view of the emphasis that evangelicals always and rightly lay on the primacy of evangelism. It would be natural to assume that we were all perfectly unanimous as to what evangelism is. Yet, in fact, much of the confusion in present-day debates about evangelism arises from lack of agreement at this point. He writes this book in 1961, by the way. The root of the confusion can be stated in a sentence. It is our widespread and persistent habit of defining evangelism in terms not of a message delivered, but of an effect produced in our hearers. And he goes on to quote as an illustration from the Archbishop's Committee Report on the Evangelistic Work of the Church from 1918, so over 100 years ago. This is how they defined evangelism. To evangelize is to so present Christ Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit that men shall come to put their trust in God through him, to accept him as their savior, and serve him as their king in the fellowship of his church. That's a pretty good definition of evangelism. And Packer goes on in that little chapter to say, here's some good things from that definition on evangelism. But then he he says we need to stop and quibble with that definition a little bit. And he says this definition is to define evangelism in terms of an effect achieved in the lives of others which amounts to saying that the essence of evangelizing is producing converts. But the question whether or not one is evangelizing cannot be settled simply by asking whether one has had conversions. In my estimation, I think Packer is spot on. And what he wrote in 1961 was probably prophetic in light of the coming seeker movement of the 80s and the attractional models of the 2000s that has emerged and all of their megachurch results because it's the megachurch results that seems to be the trump card that you often lay down to say see we're evangelistic and if you want to be evangelistic here's here's the results you should see and here's the methodologies then you should use and i think Even among us, I think there's a lot of like-mindedness among us and a talk like this one that's supposed to be more practical in nature, and I will get to that. And you ask the question, what are you doing at Summit Woods in order to be evangelistic? Sometimes just asking that question assumes the definition that we're looking for. What are you doing to produce the converts? What are you doing that's actually achieving some kind of result that we think this proves then that we are evangelistic? But at the front end of our time, we should likely remind ourselves of Packer's simple response to the question, what is evangelism? So he goes on in that chapter and he says, how then should evangelism be defined? The New Testament answer is very simple. According to the New Testament, evangelism is just preaching the gospel, the evangel. It is a work of communication in which Christians make themselves mouthpieces for God's message of mercy to sinners. Anyone who faithfully delivers that message under whatever circumstances, in a large meeting, in a small meeting, from a pulpit, or in a private conversation, is evangelizing. And he addresses the issue, does that mean that you know, seeking conversions is then irrelevant. 
in evangelism, and he says, and he goes on to say, since the divine message finds its climax in a plea from the creator to a rebel world to turn and put faith in Christ, the delivering of it involves the summoning of one's hearers to conversion. If you're not, in this sense, seeking to bring about conversions, you're not evangelizing. But the way to tell whether in fact you are evangelizing is not to ask whether conversions are known to have resulted from your witness. It is to ask whether you are faithfully making known the gospel message. He continues by addressing some issues of methodology and whether the methods make a particular setting an evangelistic one or not. In my day, we had revivals. I mean, we manufactured, or we tried to manufacture. We called them revivals, and we had them every October, and we had them in the spring, because that's when most people would come, right? The schedules allowed for it. So we were pretty pragmatic in how we approached that. And we would, we would try to bring heaven down, and we would pray, and we had all kinds of ways we can do it, and bring a friend night, and we had every night named so you, you know we could get people there. And we did see conversions, but we called them revivals as if we could create it. And as if that was what we needed to see in order to prove that we were evangelistic. Um, those were evangelistic meetings to us. But I, I want to quote again from him. He says, it needs to be said that a meeting, like a revival service, or a service of any kind, is not necessarily evangelistic just because it includes things like testimonies, choruses, and an appeal. The way to find out whether a particular service was evangelistic is to ask not whether an appeal for decision, a decision was made, but what truth was taught in it. Evangelism is to be defined not institutionally in terms of the kind of meeting held, but theologically in terms of what is taught and for what purpose. So I wonder if in our conversation about evangelism, especially as church leaders, we are prone to think that certain kinds of meetings we could have or do would be evangelistic as opposed to what we do actually every Lord's Day. So it's not necessarily the meeting or the occasion or the method that we're looking at that makes us then evangelistic. It is what are we saying? What are we calling for? And it's not just what do we see as the result. What are we saying when we meet? So I think those are some of the foundational issues. Evangelism is simply proclaiming the gospel message, calling for people to respond to the gospel message. That's evangelism. Now we can talk about how do we do that in unique ways in our church, and I think that will be very helpful for us to just talk as Dave was telling us he wants this to be kind of to talk shop among church leaders and, and what does this look like. So I'm going to arrange the rest of my talk. I'm looking at the clock, so I'll, I'll try to keep it down to the correct time. But let me arrange my talk around this subject of evangelism and particularly what are we thinking at Summit Woods Baptist Church, Lee Summit, southeast corner of Kansas City. What are we thinking about in terms of evangelism? I'm going to arrange it around a few key headings. I want to talk about the necessary theological foundations for evangelism, and I'm going to do that very quickly. 
I'm going to assume a lot about these, but I think they're necessary because they speak to what we say about the gospel. I'll talk through some methodological guidelines for evangelism. What are the guidelines in our mind for the methods that we might use? And then talk through some practical applications. So there's more to be said about these things than what I will say. Maybe there's something that could be unpacked a little bit more later uh, in our conversation. I would be happy to do that. And as I said before, I honestly think that this is an area that our church needs to grow in even more. And we need to think about more intentionally. And we've, we have been trying to do that. That's been a priority among our elders for some time. But let me start with some of the necessary theological foundations for evangelism. And these shouldn't shock anyone. They shouldn't be new to anyone, I think, here in the room. But, uh, and I, I hesitate to just assume them because I think they are so foundation. But we need some necessary theological foundations if, we, if we're going to present the right gospel. So one of those foundations is we need a God-centered theology, or what some call a big God theology. We need a robust, God-centered approach to the way we think about theology. And, and again, we could give a number of examples of where we don't see that, and a number of examples where we do. But what I mean by that is, do we have a very high view of God? When we talk about God, when we sing about God, when we pray to God in our gatherings every Lord's Day, is the view of God that we're painting one that is robust, that understands His holiness in a biblical way, that sees the thrust of the Scripture with God at the center point of it, not just humanity at the center, or we're reading ourselves into the biblical story. We're seeing what God is doing in every detail of human history. So a high view of God in His holiness, His sovereignty, His supremacy over all things, the fact that God is unique. Do we actually celebrate in our singing and praying and preaching all of the incommunicable attributes of God, the things that make Him uniquely God? Do we have an understanding that God is the Savior? He is the Savior, and He is on the hunt to save people. It's what He loves to do, that God is our Savior. And also that God is the judge, which is critical. If, if we're going to minimize that attribute of God in His judgment, I think we're undercutting something critical to our gospel presentation. And also, we want to highlight God is love and not minimize that. In all of the thunderings of the judgment of God, He is love. And love, the love of God is astounding. It is, it is an amazing thing to think through. What, what vision of God do you think you put on? I mean, I think of the occasion of 1 Corinthians 14 when it just in an offhanded way mentions what if an unbeliever happened to show up as if that's a that's not a normal occurrence because the gathering of the church is the gathering of God's people and and we get it we get it when we're talking about God the unbelieving world isn't necessarily attracted to that but believers are well what if an unbeliever happened to walk in I wonder if an unbeliever could walk in and see a picture of and vision of God so big so robust 
so biblical that they would do what 1 Corinthians 14 says. They, they hear the proclamation of the word and fall on their face and say, God is certainly among you. That seems evangelistic to me, right? That's, that's the result of evangelism. That seems evangelistic. And, and yet, how are we doing that? When people walk away, do they walk away commenting on the stage presentation or the vision of God that we put on display? I think that's critical to evangelism, and I don't want us to rush past that. With that, I think we also need a high view of Scripture. I mean, how are you going to paint this picture if you're not, if you don't know, um, you can't paint that picture if you're not confident in the Scripture, right? And that the Bible actually comes from God, and it's accurate, it's inerrant. That's critical as a foundation underneath our evangelistic message. The authority of Scripture that flows from that, that God's Word is binding on our conscience and upon our beliefs and methodologies. Do we feel that as a church, or do we think we can do anything we want to do or do we feel that, no, we're bound by the Scripture because God is the Savior and He is supreme and sovereign? Do we feel bound by the Scripture? Or do we feel like, no, we're going to go out and do anything we desire to do? Do we believe the, the Bible is enough? Do you feel like you need something more than the Scripture in order to be effective evangelistically? If you, if you do, I wonder what your vision of the Bible really is. Do you need something more than what the Bible presents in order to have the message right? Or even the practice of the Scripture. When you evaluate what your church is doing, can you assign Scripture to everything you're doing with a clear conscience? Because you're driven by the Scripture. I think we have to have a correct view of humanity. If we want a real, thorough understanding of the gospel message and an evangelistic church, and I mean by that, do you believe in total inability? Do you believe in depravity? That it's not just uh, we're bent in a certain way against God, but that every facet of our humanity is enslaved to sin so that it requires an actual supernatural movement of God to awaken the human soul to believe. What you believe about humanity, I mean, you could go back to the days of Finney and see he, he hedged on this very issue of how enslaved is humanity because then it just becomes a matter of appealing to the human will which is not necessarily enslaved to sin, and if that's all it is, then that's where all the methodologies come out of just how to appeal to the human will to move it so much so that they're now inclined to follow God. But that seems to run against the grain of what the Scripture says about the human soul. Do you really believe that all mankind was born into a condemned state and that it requires the Holy Spirit to regenerate the soul, which then leads us, you have to have a scriptural understanding of salvation, right? That God's sovereignty and salvation is, is an encouragement to evangelism. I mean, I've, recently I've, I've been preaching through the book of Titus. Have you ever thought about the way Paul introduces himself in the book of Titus? I was just dwelling on it, thinking about it recently. And it, just the introduction. You know, verse 1 that we skip over and, and we don't spend much time on. But Paul says... He's a bondservant of God, a slave of God. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. For what purpose? 
for the faith of God's elect. I mean, in that one statement, he has a high view of God's sovereignty and a right understanding of man's responsibility for the belief of those chosen of God. That's why he is who he is, for the faith of those chosen of God. He has a high view. He knows it requires God and his sovereignty, and that's why he's confident in evangelism. He's encouraged to evangelize because God is sovereign. Sovereignty never dissuades us from evangelistic passion or fervency. It should cause us to be very confident that sharing the gospel will result in people coming to know him. So God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to respond to God, they must repent and believe. They are responsible. We all are responsible to do that. Do you believe that regeneration precedes conversion? Is that even a conversation that you have at your church, that regeneration precedes conversion, that it takes the Spirit to cause a person to be born again so that they will be converted, they will repent and believe? And then how do you define conversion? Does conversion require repentance and faith? Both of them. And most of the time in Scripture, it's spoken of in that order, repentance, then faith. It's an interesting study if you want to look into that. But do you believe that? Do you thoroughly believe that conversion is repentance unto faith? And then when someone believes, is it your understanding of belief that that leads to a transformation of life? That it's more than just a mental assent to certain theological facts or realities but it's such a, an ascent in the mind, and the mind grasps it so well that it totally reorients the life to live for God, understanding that this life once lived for self. The glory of God becomes more compelling because we saw in ourselves we used to pursue the glory of self, and we're repenting of that. Is that how we understand? I, I think, again, the book of Titus over and over again when it rehearses the gospel, and you can see it in every chapter, he rehearses the gospel, the gospel message. And at the conclusion of that, it says in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, that it produces a people who are zealous for good works. Not good works to try to attain some kind of standing with God, but because God has saved, it creates a people who are zealous to do good. Now, if that isn't your understanding of conversion, I think it affects what you define as evangelism. Does transformation actually sanctify? Does sanctification produce glorification? Is glorification guaranteed? I think those are other elements within our understanding of salvation that undergird our evangelism. So... In my mind, those are just necessary theological foundations. Do you also have a Great Commission comprehension? Do you understand the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Uh, and what I mean by that is if you want to turn there for a moment, we'll just look at it really briefly. In verse 18, when 
Jesus comes up to the remaining disciples, speaks to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, which is really a significant statement in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly because he's been showing from the very beginning of Matthew throughout what kind of authority he possesses over the demonic world, over the physical world, over the natural world, the spiritual world. I mean, he's been showing his authority, and now he's saying, after the resurrection, it's all mine. It's been given to me, as if from the Father. And then the next verse says what? Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. In our minds, is that what we're doing? We're going to make disciples. And do we understand what disciples are? Well, again, that's critical in the Gospel of Matthew because that's, there's a rehearsal of that throughout the entire Gospel of what a disciple is. They, they, they follow the Lord's word. They consider the worth of the Lord. They're... They're absolutely transformed because when they say they're going to follow Christ, it means they completely identify, identify themselves with Jesus as their Lord. Make disciples. Do you, do you understand what he means by go? I, I've heard pastors say, well, in the original Greek, the word go is a participle, and it should be translated as you go. So as you go about life, you are to make disciples. The problem with that is that's actually not what it says. No English translation, no good one at least, actually translated, translates this as as you go. It translates it as go. So I could go into how the aorist circumstantial participle of attendant circumstance preceding the aorist active imperative verb means that we should translate it as a command. That might not mean anything to you. <laughs> Or I could put it this way. If I told my son, who happens to be here tonight, I won't say where he is sitting at the back, but <laughs> if I told my son, go clean your room. I don't mean, as you go about your day today, clean your room. I mean, right now, go clean your room. Matter of fact, the room won't be clean unless you go clean it. Go clean your room. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Go make disciples. It's not going to be done if you don't go. You must go and make disciples. It's not as you go. It's not as you get around to it. It's not just through the, the, the warp and woof of your day. No, intentionally have a mindset to go. That's the Great Commission. And it includes baptism, which I would just say there is a connection there in, inherent in the idea of baptism to the local church. I won't unpack all of that at this point, but it's not just a sign of your conversion, it's a sign of your inclusion in the body of Christ. It's corporate in nature. So it assumes the local church in the Great Commission. And teaching disciples is a part of the Great Commission. Evangelism is a sliver of discipleship, isn't it? It's a part of it. And we, but we need to think in terms of evangelism in the whole of what we're doing in, ter in terms of making disciples. So I, I think we have to have a high view of God kind of theology. We need to have a right view of the, the Great Commission. I think also we, we have to have a local church-focused theology that if we have people out there who think that they can legitimately call themselves Christians and not be a part of the local church, I'm not sure that we've really evangelized someone. So 
Someone will ask me, do you think I have to be a member of a local church in order to be a Christian? And I usually respond with, to that by saying, I don't know what evidence I have that you are a Christian if you don't want to be a part of his church. If Jesus died for his church, but you don't want to be a part of it, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. So maybe there's more to talk about in that, but the local church is critical in our understanding of evangelism. That's right. Now, that's kind of the theological foundations. Let me move to some methodological guidelines that I, I think we try to think of and, and we want to think of more. Um, and let me put it in terms of personal evangelism and corporate evangelism. Personal meaning the conversations we're having with individuals and maybe small groups of people and corporate of what we're doing actually in our gatherings together. Uh, in personal evangelism, I think it is, it's imperative that we start with the greatness of God before we talk about man's neediness. I think that's what Paul did on Mars Hill. Don't you? I mean, if you read it carefully in Acts 17, he didn't start with their need. He started with, let me tell you about the God who created everything. And, and I've heard people say, now see, Paul never quoted a Bible verse. Paul never went through the... I see him going from Genesis forward. And he'd already been <coughs> preaching Jesus and the resurrection in, down in the marketplace. And that's what got him up on Mars Hill to begin with. So they already knew he was preaching Jesus, resurrection. And when he gets in front of these people, he starts with God in Genesis because he's not assuming they know who he is, which is where we are today, isn't it? I mean, we, we can say we're in red state America here and we kind of have a church culture. That's rapidly changing. I, I've served in Southern California. You didn't assume anybody understood church there. You assume they don't know anything about it, so you better start painting a picture of who is the God of the Bible. In fact, the God of the Bible, I think, has not been preached so clearly in so many places. We better start there. And how else will you actually understand our need if you don't understand first who God is? That actually puts in perspective why we need a Savior so significantly. So begin with the greatness of God, and even in a private conversation, and linger there until, until they get it, so that they can see where their need is. I think also in personal evangelism, methodologically, for our church, I want to emphasize relationships above events, not instead of, but above. I want, I want our congregation to view themselves that God is so sovereign that they live where they live, they work where they work, they make the money they make, they know the people they know, they're in the family that they're in for the purpose of preaching the gospel. That they are in that neighborhood and it's as if they should see that as their field. And when they go to work that these co-workers and these family members that frustrate you are actually your field. Amen. They're a part of God put you here, awakened you, you know the gospel. Do our members see that? Do they feel that? So I, I want that to be the emphasis. I'm not against having some events that are evangelistically focused, but that isn't what drives Summit Woods Baptist. And maybe that's a conversation piece as well. 
maybe we need to have more events than we do. We don't have anything that I would say is just strictly evangelistic in the sense that some might speak of it. But I, I want us to think about the relationships around us as God's assignment for evangelistic purposes. And I also think we ought to think more robustly about our corporate evangelism and what's actually happening on the Lord's Day. Uh, it's been common for a lot of Bible teaching churches to say, well, the Lord's Day is for the Lord's people. We have emphasized edification. And I think that's right. I think that's the, the emphasis of something like 1 Corinthians 14. Just go trace how many times you see the word edification in that chapter. That should be the emphasis of the church. Uh, but wouldn't we want to say that worship and the people of God zealously, passionately, accurately worshiping God is an evangelistic tool? Isn't that what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 14 when the unbeliever comes in and says God is truly among you because they came face to face with who God is in relationship to who they are and they're seeing people who embrace that. That is evangelistic. Um, another, another element of this is, especially in corporate evangelism, an awareness of sinners does not demand an emphasis on sinners. So I want to be aware that non-Christians are in our midst. And I also understand the gospel is highly offensive to the human heart. I don't want us to be unnecessarily offensive to people when they come in. So I want to be aware. Uh, I remember inviting my grandfather who never did come to faith in Christ. I remember bringing him to church. He had never been to church. He rejected Roman Catholicism way, way back because he wasn't going to sign a paper that says he's going to raise his children and that. And so he just rejected. When he rejected Catholicism, he rejected all religion until the day he died. He died as a non-believer. But I remember him coming to church. He'd never opened a Bible. He had never opened a hymnal. He didn't know what, what we were singing. He had no concept. And, and I, it was painfully, I was painfully aware of how little we were doing to help someone like him. So I think we need an awareness so that we're helping non-Christians navigate through what we're doing and explaining what we're doing and maybe connecting them to people who could help with that. But that doesn't mean that our gathering should be an emphasis on the non-Christian. And I think we should be careful about that. I hear 1 Corinthians 9 quoted a lot that, you know, we should, we should really make our gatherings look like something that would be attractive to the non-Christian world because after Paul, you know, after, after all, look at what Paul would do. He would do do anything. He would look like the Gentiles in order to win the Gentiles. He would look like the Jews in order to win the Jews. Problem is, in 1 Corinthians 9, he's not talking about what he does at church. He's talking about his own personal engagement with people. If he's at a, if he's at a Gentile's home, he's not trying to, to impose Jewish ideas on them. If he's in a Jewish home, he's not bringing over pork ribs for dinner. I mean, he, he's just aware of where he is and aware of how people think. But it's, that doesn't mean that we make the, the gatherings all about the non-Christian. We're, we're not trying to win them over to come to church rather than go to the bars. We're, we're trying to get them to see who God is and who we are as a result. Um, 
And I think events can be evangelistic and they can do things like breed fellowship. There's lots of things you can do in men's and women's events and even entire church events. Our family recently went out to the uh, journey to Judea uh, with uh, Countryside Church in Olathe and it's a marvelous depiction of the gospel and, and 10,000 people, would you guess, Mike, were, went through that, that heard the gospel? That's fantastic. And, and I'm guessing you probably had several hundred, four or five hundred people from the church investing in that, which is incredible coming together like that. But my guess is Countryside Church doesn't exist for Journey to Judea. It's more than that. And it's beyond that. That's a, a piece of what they do. It's an, an event, and maybe you have something like that. I, I don't know that we do other than things like Christmas Eve. Now, when I was in California, churches didn't do Christmas Eve very much. And when I was in Texas, in the panhandle of Texas, nobody did Christmas Eve. I'd never seen that before. You come out here, Christmas Eve is like Sunday. It's, it's bigger than Sunday, right? Churches are not worshiping on Sunday because they do Christmas Eve, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's huge, and that's like the big evangelistic event. And, and guess what? People come to that, right? Culturally, they, they come. So if you're not thinking through that in some kind of, okay, we have a lot of non-Christians coming and you're not aware of that, I don't know a spiritual way to say this. That's dumb, right? <laughs> You've got to think through that and, and be aware of that. Uh, maybe there, there's things we've done on Halloween to try to engage our, our community because they're out there. I'm not saying that we're worshiping the devil with them and all that kind of thing. But they're out there, so how are we engaging them? What are we doing? Uh, we've, we've used some of that. Um, and, and I don't want us to forget also that there are, there are things like the extension of evangelism from our local church, like church planting, planting churches in other countries. As, as we've become more emphatic on that in our congregation, it's fascinating to see how people are thinking more evangelistically per personally. When we're talking more about sharing the gospel, we've, we've gone to Central Asia and into Turkey, and I was just there in August, and we come back and we talk about the ease of sharing Christ with people. I, I'm not seeing a lot of people converted, you know, in those encounters, but it was far easier to get into a gospel conversation in Turkey than it was in my own neighborhood. I mean, it was just so easy, so natural. They were engaged, they were interested, they wanted more information. Uh, we still keep in touch with some of those people and they're still having conversations, trying to connect them to churches there, even though there aren't many churches there. Uh, we went into places where there is no church and there are no known Christians at all and had an hour-long conversation with a very committed Muslim about the gospel of Jesus in the most robust way I think I've shared the gospel in a long time. And, and I didn't, I wasn't beheaded. Uh, I, you know, he's not hunting my family. It was, he's actually gave me his card and said, I'd like to keep in touch and talk more. So I just think the more we, we are reaching out beyond ourselves, planting other churches, trying to be more globally minded, that happens. So a couple of uh, ideas of what we're doing practically, and maybe we can talk more on this uh, more in the Q&A time. Our elders felt like this was such a weakness in our church. We have felt that for a long time. 
that we, every year our elders kind of go through a, a SWOT process, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and we just think through what, what role could the elders uniquely play that, that would land on our table most uniquely? Someone else in the church shouldn't do this. This is our responsibility to address that might be unique to our church this year. And, and, and evangelism comes up a lot, wouldn't you say? It, it's regularly on our plate. And a couple of years ago we said, all right, we, we, we want to start addressing this. And so we said, we're going to have one of our interns. And he's, he's not an intern anymore, but Daniel Pentamon, who's here, was the guinea pig for this. And so you can talk to him more. But we, we said, as a part of your internship, he'd been with us for about three, four years, so he knows the church well, the church knows him well. And we said, what your project is for the next year, basically, is we want you to assess what is the mindset towards evangelism in our church? How do people think about it? What encourages them? What discourages them? What, what do you see? What are the strengths and weaknesses that we have as a church in that area? And he produced, I looked at it again today, a 32-page <laughs> report with quotes and descriptions because he interacted with lots of people. He evaluated things historically, interviewed leaders, interviewed just normal members. And he said, one report said, here's where I think we are. And we read that report and we, we kind of quibbled with some of his thoughts there. And he's like, well, this is just what I'm seeing. And, uh, you know, we elders were like, well, we have, well, we have answers to all these things, you know. <laughs> but it's where we were. <clears throat> And then the next phase is, okay, what are we going to do about this? And he spent some time working that through, and, and, and we come down to the reality of we need, we need more of an atmosphere of evangelism, more than we need anything pragmatically. Uh, we need to cultivate some kind of atmosphere in our church where people sense this is what we do. This is who we are. This is... Because we're Christians, we engage others who don't know the gospel with the gospel. We do this in our gatherings, and we do this outside our gatherings. It's, 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 it's what we are, and we want people thinking that way. So we, we formed just a small team of people who could help start to think about ways, what are ways that we could begin to, to do that with some of the existing <coughs> structures that we have, such as our equipping classes. That's what traditionally in our circles of Southern Baptist life would be called Sunday school. I don't know what you call it, adult Bible fellowship, whatever. Ours is not age graded. It's not uh, teacher driven necessarily. It's not one guy teaching for the rest of his life and everybody likes that teacher so they go to his class. Uh, we, don't, we, we did do that but we moved away from it. So what we have is classes on kind of a, a trimester through the year and we said, how many of those classes are we actually equipping our members to know what the gospel is, know what to say, what verses do you go to? So within the calendar year, we're always trying to make sure that we're training our people, at least in that hour, for evangelism. I was just looking, we have some classes even now uh, where we're going through some material to focus on evangelism. We've used Grace Community Church's material, Grace Evangelism, which is available to you. It's just an evangelism training material. 
Uh, we've used some material from Nine Marks, which is free. You don't have to buy it. You go to their core seminars at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and they have some courses designed for, like, small group places on evangelism, just material we could train our people. Um, we were reading through Rosaria Butter Butterfield's book on hospitality. Are you familiar with that book? Man, that is convicting to me. It, it stirs up my heart in so many different ways. And so we've used that book a number of times to how are you thinking about your neighborhood and the people and how you're investing in them, not, not just as a project, but this is you living your life out with them and seeing the providential needs they have and using it. Um, that's been helpful. We've started having lunches after church and we're evaluating is that an effective means, uh, but I, one thing I have noticed, every, every month we, we have a lunch where one of the guys is going to give a small talk trying to equip people or help people understand how can you evangelize where you are. So it's a, it's a pizza lunch you don't have to prepare for. It. You just go into the fellowship hall. They're going to have this talk. They're going to talk with you maybe back and forth and do some conversation on what would this look like in your areas to try to help people think evangelistically. And, and, and we don't have a ton of people who go to that, correct? But it's interesting the fact that I announce it every month and say, we have a lunch to talk about evangelism. I think, again, puts it in our mind. How are we thinking evangelistic, intentionally evangelistically? Um, so that local evangelistic team, they're also evaluating our participation and even some, some organizations that are out there that, that are you know, perhaps evangelistic in nature, uh, such as Elias Coffee House in, in Northeast Kansas City. And we have people who are going out there on a regular basis trying to get into Bible studies with people in the area. And Central Baptist Church is there, and we have a strong connection to Central Baptist. And we say, for us, it's not enough for us to just share the gospel. What church are we going to help them connect to if we share the gospel with them? Well, we send them, and we tell them, go to Central. They're, they're like right there. And they will shepherd you, and they will love you, and they'll care about you. Um, so we have people involved in those sorts of things. Um, we, we have a number of ways we're trying to train formally, men's and women's discipleship groups that are always talking about evangelism. Our growth groups, which are our home meetings that meet first and third Sunday evenings every month. And they have questions that they're going to discuss as application from the message from the morning. And they talk in these groups about how are we applying what we heard in the Word of God. And inherently, I, I encourage the guys who are writing the questions, when I used to write the questions, I wanted something in there all the time that says, how are you seeing this truth in relationship to non-Christians? How are you thinking through, even if the passage did not address necessarily the non-Christian head on, how are you thinking this through of the people in your life? In those growth groups, who are you praying for specifically? Who in, in your family, in your spheres? I, and I know in my group, we are all the time talking about family members, co-workers, neighbors, that our members are trying to engage with the gospel. And we just want that flavor always in our groups. That's a part of who we are. It's how we're talking. Um, even our leadership training, I do a study with men every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. to 7.30. Uh, we're just finishing up a tour of systematic theology. It's kind of a leadership training time for us. But the next phase of that is going to be all about evangelism and discipleship. 
and we're going to not just talk about evangelism, we're going to try to get personal with the guys. There's maybe 25 guys who come most weeks in, in that class, and we're just going to emphasize talking through evangelism. I'm, I'm having them read material. Mark Devers' little book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. Uh, that's been influential in a number of people of our church where Mark Dever just talks about in that book, yeah, I go to the same barber, I eat at the same restaurants, I go to the same places that are close to me so I can build a relationship with the people who are there for the purpose of evangelism. And, and uh, so the guys know, um, and, and if you've come to out and I take you to lunch, we're probably going to go to Iron Horse. Used to be a barbecue place and I'm sad that it's gone. Uh, but COVID killed it. But it's now another place, but it's just right down the street. And I want to go there regularly because I want to get to know the staff. It's the only restaurant that's ever given me a Christmas card. That's how often I've gone there. So. <laughs> but I, I knew them well enough, and they knew me well enough that we'd have lots of conversations. Matter of fact, Samuel Nelson and I have been there. And Samuel, uh, you remember diving into one of the, our servers? Sure and uh, just engaged him for a regular amount of time with the gospel. Uh, it was wonderful, and we've had lots of conversations like So just frequently frequenting the same places, our members are like, oh, I can do that. Yeah. I can do that. Um, I know the time is up, but uh, there's more that I can talk about that we're trying to do. Uh, but uh, we, we try to stock our resource room, which is it's not a bookstore because we don't want to run inventory and that kind of thing. But I do want some resources where if a member says, hey, I want to sit down and, and walk through a, a book or something with someone, they could just walk in there and we have some decent resources for them. How many of those resources are evangelistic? Our evangelistic team went through our resource room and said, you know, we need more material in here that would help people understand or they could use in a gospel conversation. That was helpful. So that kind of has transformed what's available in that room. So our members could say, oh, I'm going to grab that. We can meet together and talk. Recently, the, the evangelism team put a little card together, right, that were in the bag that we might give away to guests. And I, I know, you know, most of the time we're just trying to find ways to manipulate people to turn in their information to us so we can put them on our mailing list. <laughs> I love what they're doing. They have a card in there. It's not you're going to get a free QT gift card or anything like that. But you can get a free cup of coffee with a conversation with one of our members. So we'd love to have a personal conversation with you. And, and they've put that together in such a way that it lends itself well to people having a personal conversation and starting to talk about where are they in their life and beginning to get into a gospel conversation. Regularly at the end of the service, I'm always making an appeal, not necessarily, I know I'm Southern Baptist, but it's not a walk down the aisle kind of thing, but I am making an appeal in every gathering. If you do not know who Christ is, if you're not a disciple, our elders are available, here's where they're going to be, but at the same time, you could turn around to any member of our church, any member, because we have a regenerate church membership idea, right? So any member who's sitting next to you could explain the gospel to you. I think some of our members, when I first did that, went, oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> really? But, right? I mean, they shouldn't be a member of a church if they can't explain the gospel. Right? So they know the gospel, and, and they could explain the gospel to you. Can we instill our members to say, you know what? Your non-Christian friend, this might have been above their head in some ways. This might be new to them. But your responsibility, if you brought them, is to 
bring them to your home or follow up with them to say, let's talk about what happened on Sunday. Let's just talk about that together. And what did you not understand? And what was confusing to you? Or what was interesting? And, and begin to build the conversation with them. That needs to become more of, of, of what we do as well. I, I would say evangelism is inherent in everything we're trying to do in children's ministry. I mean, most of them are not Christians, right? How easy is that? But those theological foundations that we talked about, that's what we're trying to drive into the, the hearts and minds of our kids to see when, when the Lord uses that truth to flourish. Our grounded student ministry, and one of our elders who oversees that ministry, one of the things he does is he gets, it's always this battle, he always cherry picks some of the best, most mature Christians in our church to be in student ministry. Meaning, I can't get them to serve in other areas. Because he, he makes them make, when they agree to be a small group leader, they have to make, how long is the commitment? Six years. They have to commit to it for six years. Why? They're going to connect them to seventh graders, and they're going to go with them all the way until they're through high school. And it's not just small groups they're meeting in. They get together outside of those small groups for building relationships. They meet with parents. They invest in the kids and in the parents. It's for the purpose of evangelism, right? Seeing them come to faith in Christ. I, there's, there's probably more adults, you know, just involved in that kind of intensive ministry than maybe in any other, other ministry that we have that's, that's like that. Which, there's a lot of people right there in student ministry who are not Christians, right? So what are we doing? We have to think that way. <coughs> So, again, there's, there's more that we could talk about in those, those areas, and maybe Dave will pick some of that up. So, time's up. Right. Yeah, let me pray. Father, I know in our conversation today that the things that we talk about, uh, I'm sure there are many more ideas or suggestions or thoughts that could be made here, and I'm eager to hear those and learn from them. I pray that you would help all of us in the room here to have a greater fervency in investing intentionally in non-Christians to see them understand the truth by your grace. And I pray that as a result of this time, not just tonight, but we anticipate tomorrow as well, that, that you would use this time for whatever purpose you have in mind. It seems as if you're doing something unique in this area. Perhaps you would use this as another way to inflame our hearts and to encourage us and convict us to be more intentional in sharing the gospel, in investing in the non-Christians around us. We pray you'd help us to do that well, and that we would not minimize what needs to be actually maximized in people's minds, and that we wouldn't get discouraged when we don't see the results we think we should, but that we would think about how could we be more faithful, how could we be more intentional? And how can we trust you to do what you alone actually can do, and that is save a soul from hell? And Lord, we pray that you would flood our churches with new Christians, people coming to faith in Christ, and that we might see the transformation even of, of a region and a culture because of what you do in the hearts of people who are now rightly related to you. We pray for this in Jesus' name.
Amen.